0: Wonderful passage of Scripture. Thank you for the joy that is in it. Thank you for the humor that is in it. Thank you, Lord, that it is a part of who we are. We feel so connected, Lord, as we read the Scriptures with with those disciples. That's our story, too. Lord, so that being the case, please make it come alive to us this morning. Uh, Grant me, as the preacher of the word, exactly the right words to speak, uh, words that will bring encouragement words that will bring joy, words that will bring new direction for living. And I pray that you would grant every one of us, Lord, the fullness of your Spirit, that we might receive with joy the the treasures of the gospel in this text. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this passage, um, you know, I've read it all week, and it wasn't until just now that I am reading it out loud, that I realize just exactly how hilarious this is. Uh, it really is. I love this passage. But a lot of us, ink has been spilt over the years, ever since the early church fathers, on what is the deeper hidden meaning of this text? What is that? What are those? What's the meaning behind that 153 fish and the net that's not torn? Obviously, there's got to be some deeper significance. Well, maybe there is, and, and maybe that would be for another sermon. But we don't need to look for a deep, hidden layer in this text because John, the gospel writer, tells us exactly what it's about here in verses 1 and then again in verse 14. Listen to what it says in verse 1. Uh, This is chapter 21. Now, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And this, and he revealed himself in this way. And then in verse 14... Now, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So what is this passage about? Well, it's about how Jesus revealed himself. This is a passage about, you could almost call this an epiphany passage. This isn't a passage about how Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples. How he manifested himself to his disciples following his resurrection. And I think that how he revealed himself to those first disciples is consistent with how he wants to reveal himself to us today. Jesus wants to be revealed to you and me, his followers. He, you know, the Lord is, uh, he is not far off. He's closer to you than your closest thought. He desires for you to know and experience him. The entire 66 canonical books of the scriptures are God's testimony that he wants to be known by you. And the risen Christ wants you to know him as well. And so, this passage of scripture from John chapter 21 reveals to us how Christ wants to be revealed to us. And so, let's just jump right into the text right now. The first thing that you notice as we're looking at this passage is that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples in the context of their daily work, in the context of their jobs. Listen again to that passage Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing and they said to him we will go with you and they went out and got into the boat but that night they caught nothing and just as day was breaking jesus stood on the shore yet the disciples did not know it was jesus how was he mysteriously hidden no cuz it's dark mostly that's how come they didn't recognize him jesus said to them children do you have any fish And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find something. Now listen, so they cast it and now they were not not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now this is when the penny drops. Listen, the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. Now some have been tempted to see this text that we just read as a failure of mission and vision on a part of the disciples. I mean, back in chapter 20... They had been overtly, overtly um, commissioned. In chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And that root word in Greek for sending to be sent is what? It comes from the word apostolos. comes from that apostle. So he, he made them apostles. And so obviously they must be messing up because they're not out apostling; They're fishing. What's wrong here? Well, that's not what's going on. There's nothing wrong with what they're doing because, you see, fishing was their trade. It's how they made a living, and it is exactly what they should have been doing. J.C. Ryle, good Bishop Ryle, says this about this passage. We find them working with their own hands in order to supply their temporal needs and working at one of the humblest callings, the calling of a fisherman. Now, I used to live, I was uh, for four years, I was a pastor on the on the outer banks of North Carolina, and I worked, I literally worked on the fishing boats, uh, going out at night shrimping with those uh, fishermen. And it's, first of all, it's work. Uh, second of all, um, it's, uh, it's hard work. And third of all, they don't speak English. I don't know what they were saying to me, but it's that high tideer stuff, and I couldn't follow them. Uh, but I know what this is like. So they're, they're, they're called, they were the humblest of callings, the calling of a fisherman. Silver and gold had they none. Lands and revenues had they none, and therefore they were not ashamed to return to the business to which they had most of them been trained. Now listen, these very men who toiled all night in a boat, dragging about a cold cold net and taking nothing, these very men who found it necessary to work hard in order that they may eat, these very men were some of the first founders of the mighty church of Christ, which is now or spread the globe. These men knew how to work. These apostles, these princes of the church, were laborers. You know, I've been told, and Father Keith was sitting right beside me when I was told this, He said, Ben Sharp, you have a bias about only wanting to see people ordained who have had to earn a living in the real world. I've been involved in ordination uh, uh, um, questioning and and interviews and things like that. I want to see people ordained who have had to work in the marketplace before they become clergy. I'm not really sanguine about people who go directly from college to seminary to a pulpit. I think they're losing something in that. That's, That's my bias. I know it's my bias. I want to see folks who know what it's like to hold down a job in the marketplace before they get in a pulpit. And it would seem that the Lord Jesus has the same bias. I think that might have been self-serving, just a little bit. But precisely, because precisely in the context, though, of our regular daily work, Jesus reveals himself to us, his disciples, just like he revealed himself to those disciples. God honors our human labor, whether that labor is in research or fishing or contracting, or banking, or being a physician, God is honored and glorified when we offer our labor to him as a gift. Even what the world sees as demeaning Grinding work, dehumanizing labor can be transformed into a gift from God in which God reveals himself to us and in which he is glorified. Even if you are in a cubicle, you can glorify God in your work and he will reveal himself to you in that context. So in Colossians 3, St. Paul is actually speaking to slaves when he says this. Slaves, Christians who were under the dehumanizing yoke of slavery... Paul writes to them, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. That's the key. Not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. You see, work, unlike what many people think, is not a result of the fall. It is not a result of the curse. A few years ago, Chuck Colson commented, The bumper sticker read, I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. Well, that's what many, including many Christians, think of work. Work to so many people is simply a necessary evil. The goal in life is putting in enough time to retire and relax. But that attitude and that goal is contrary to a Christian worldview perspective on work. Christians honor the fundamental dignity of workers because we worship a God who labored to make the world and who created human beings in his image to be his workers. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave them work to do, cultivating and caring for the earth. In the ancient world, the Greeks and Romans looked upon manual work as a curse, something for lower classes and for slaves. But Christianity changed all of that. Christians viewed work as a high calling, a calling to be co-workers with God and unfolding the rich potential of his creation. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I want to tell you good news. The good news is that Jesus himself wants to reveal himself to you in your work. And that work will be a part, and, and, and we think work stops in the kingdom. No, brothers and sisters, work will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. When all of our labor, listen, all of our labor will be pure delight in God in a new creation and an enhancement of that new creation. So um, what happens in a fallen world is that part of our work is delight. Part of our work, especially if we get to work in something creative, we're producing something creative, we love that. But there's also the work part that we don't like, which usually deals with having to deal with the public. Uh, But but no, but seriously, so we have this corpus per We have a mixed body of some of our work is great, and some of it is kind of like, you know, work a four-letter word. But I want you to know that there is coming a time, and you you and I were made for this, where God's goodness will be consistently and unrelentingly revealed to you in work. Here's how I know this to be true. Um, I am, I don't know how this happened, I hated this when I was growing up, I hated working in the yard, I hated working in the garden. I I love, working in my garden. I love building plant beds. I love digging in the dirt. I love hauling. I love getting in my little pickup truck and going to Pope's Sand and Gravel and playing trucks and getting a load of dirt and driving back to my house and unloading new, uh, new dirt into my garden. I love, I love, I can't, when I have a day off, I can't wait to get there in the morning and I can't, and I hate to leave it in the evening. And I don't care how exhausted I am. I don't, it even makes me joyful to be sore from it. And I just love every man. I love popping suckers off tomato plants. What's that? Well, you come work at my house. I'll show you what we're doing. Now, what is going on there? It's a delight. Is it labor? Yes. But it is sheer joy. And I experience the great gardener himself in my garden. And that's what work is about. Christ can reveal himself to you in your work. If you will just open your eyes... And you'll see him on the shore. And you'll say all of a sudden as, as he touches your labor, it's the Lord. He's here with me right now. Another way that God reveals himself to us is through abundance. Christ, the risen Christ, reveals himself to us through abundance. Listen to this passage again. The risen Lord reveals himself in abundance. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because this um, the last sign that Jesus does, which is this abundant haul of fish, 153 very large fish. Um, you know, here's another explanation for that number. They were fishermen, and they remembered it. Because fishermen will tell you how big. Now, well, sometimes that size will grow. But this is the gospel, so I'm sure it's accurate. But there, this, is, uh, this, re, this last sign that Jesus does in John's gospel is a reflection of, of the first sign he does, which is what? Cana of Galilee, John chapter 2. Jesus takes water and turns Cana into a major wine-producing community in Galilee, 130 plus gallons. That's the first sign he does in Cana of Galilee. And then listen to the passage we just read. Now, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. The way Jesus' question uh, in the Greek actually reads like this. When he, when he asked them about, the, uh, uh, he, he them about the, the haul of fish, and the word he uses is paideia. He says, uh, so basically, it's this, and it's, it, the Greek is phrased expecting a negative response. Boys, you haven't caught any fish, have you? And that's why they say, no. <laughs> that curt and frustrated response is actually their recognition of a fruitless night of labor. But then, Jesus shows up, and he changes their empty nets into abundance. And I think that the beloved disciple recognizes that it's Jesus because he's remembering another encounter with, the, with Jesus where they had a huge catch of fish too. It's not recorded in, in um, John's gospel. It's actually recorded in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5 where Jesus is calling those first disciples. They toiled all night, didn't catch anything. Jesus gets in one of the boats, teaches the people who were gathered on the shoreline. After he's through teaching, he tells Peter and the other disciples, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Lord, we've toiled all night and caught nothing, but because you say so, we'll do it. They go out and they put out their nets and they caught such a great catch a a fish at that point, it says the nets began to break, and they had to call other boats to help them haul it in. Peter falls at Jesus' uh, feet at that point, and he says, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. I know he was, because he's a fisherman, you see, and uh, because I (laughs) work with those guys. No, he's just blown away, and that's when the beloved disciple says, we've seen this before. We've lived this reality before. We saw his lordship. We recognized him as the Lord of abundance when he called us. And he is the same, even greater Lord of abundance this time because he's so abundant, he doesn't even let our nets break. He is the Lord of abundance. In the presence of Jesus, scarcity is overturned. You know, um, In the mainline church that I used to to, uh, serve in years ago, um, we acted like scarcity was normal in church life. We acted like scarcity was the norm. But one of the beautiful things about serving at Christ Church that I have been able to discover is this. Dear friends, if Christ is with us and we are listening to him and obeying him, Cast your nets on the other side, on the right side of the boat. If we, if we walk with him in mission and ministry, abundance is the rule. Which is why we have never budgeted reasonably at Christchurch. Church. Our church budget is a theological document that is always a deficit budget. Every year we've always done a deficit budget. We always say we're going to spend more money than we take in. Because for some, and it's not because we're irresponsible. It's because we thought Jesus is alive. That's what we got messed up on. We, we took for granted somehow that the Lord has arrived and risen from the dead. And he is the Lord of abundance. And doggone it, if he doesn't just keep blowing it out of the water every single year. There's never been a year that we've come in short. Now, this is not a tithing sermon. I'm just telling you, Jesus, when we walk with him and we are working with him, he is the Lord of abundance. Now, the interesting response to this kind of kingdom abundance is displayed by Peter. Of course. I love this. So when Peter sees the huge catch of fish, he doesn't start, he doesn't get out his pocket calculator and think, I'm going to make a killing at the fish market later today. He doesn't hoard his fish. He doesn't pet his fish. Peter, who's stripped down to his loincloth, basically, puts on his outer garment, because any time you did a religious greeting, you had to be clothed. It's a, it's a Jewish, uh, it's part of the, um, it's not Torah, but it's a part of Jewish custom. And so he puts his outer garment on, and it says, and he casts himself into the sea. Here's what happens when we experience the kingdom abundance of Christ. It makes you where you can't wait to get to Jesus fast enough to worship him and honor him and love him. Abundance catapulted Peter off the side of the boat and into the arms of Jesus. And that's, what, that's how we can tell when we're dealing with genuine kingdom abundance, is we become forgetful of the gift and just are overwhelmed with the giver. And that's how you can tell. That's the kingdom of re- response to Abundance. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we do start thinking like, like church people, and we want to start saying, well, we've got to balance the budget. No, we don't. No, we don't. No. We're not idiots. But we know Jesus is alive. And we live like he's alive. Christ reveals himself to us in abundance. I love the story. I told it last time in 2008. I keep track. I've been here a long time. I know I repeat myself. Okay? So, but most of y'all weren't here in 2008, so I get a do-over. But I love this story so much. It's, it's um, about how Jesus shows up when, and an abundance happens. Uh, Father Richard Thomas, who passed away in 2006 at the age of uh, 70, 78 years old, he served for 60 years as a Jesuit priest in mission to impo- impoverished Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in and around the El Paso, Texas area. One of the ministries that he and his uh, mission was involved in happens to be across the border in Juarez, Ciudad Juarez. And so Father Thomas and others would go to the jail there to feed and to offer the gospel to the prisoners and to the guards. And on one of those occasions, Father Thomas and the helpers realized that Jesus was revealing himself in a Mexican jail through abundance. Um. This is his own words. We were visiting the jail, he says. It was the week before Easter. We were giving the prisoners a special Mexican dish, bread pudding. And as we were giving it out, the lady told me that there wouldn't be enough because they let prisoners out of cells that held 75 or 80 of them. The prisoners kept coming and coming, and yet the bread pudding was not diminishing. Neither was the lemonade. Even though it was, had already been the, the, you know, the got cooler, the, the pitcher had been tipped over to get the final three or four cups from the lemonade pitcher. These prisoners, he writes, just kept coming and coming, but we knew God was multiplying bread pudding, says Father Thomas. Everybody had a plate, had a paper plate, heat up with bread pudding. And we were also giving them lemonade. All the prisoners got all the lemonade they wanted. This went on for half an hour. And we all realized what was happening. We realized what was happening. It's the Lord. We could see there was no end to the lemonade she could get out. And then we gave it to all the police and the guards. All they wanted. More than we planned. And after no one wanted any more, there was no more left. Isn't that beautiful? This is what happens when the risen Christ shows up. He is the Lord of abundance, and he reveals himself that way. And the, the way that's so precious, the way that this passage closes that's so precious, is that Jesus also reveals himself to us in another way. Jesus reveals himself to us in a meal. He provided them a meal. Now, they got out on land, and they saw a charcoal fire in place. The last charcoal fire that's mentioned in John's gospel is the one that Peter warms himself by when he denies the Lord. But the risen Lord shows up and makes another charcoal fire. With fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love to think about this scene. You have, this is the incarnate God of the universe stooping on a, on a beach to build a campfire. The glorious, glorified Resurrected Lord Jesus stoops on a beach to build a campfire to make breakfast for his followers. There is such, not just humility, but provision and tenderness and love. And it is he who serves his friends. And then Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And that phrasing and the mention of the bread before the fish is clearly meant by John to remind them and us of the meal that he still gives his disciples. It is in the meal that they knew it was the Lord. You know, in Luke's gospel, and we actually mentioned it, I think it's a, a reference in the Collect this morning, but it's not just for Luke, it's for this passage in John too. Whose disciples, you are made known to your disciples in the breaking of the bread. Made known to your disciples in the breaking of the bread. In Luke's gospel, that happens on the road to Emmaus. You know that, that story from Emmaus 24 and um verses 30 and 31 you know the the two disciples uh um and one other it says he doesn't get named uh get are walking to emmaus on the day of resurrection and a stranger comes up and is walking beside them and he says uh you know why are you so downcast and they looked at him they said don't are you the only visitor in jerusalem that doesn't know what has happened in these days of course the the irony there is jesus is the only one that does know what's happened in these days. They think Jesus is dead. So they're talking to him and beginning with the prophets and the Psalms and, he, 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 and all the scriptures, he told them how it all pointed to him. And when they got to the place where they were staying, he made, it, made as if he were to go on ahead. And they, they said, stay with us for evening is at hand and the day has passed. And so he went in. This is so great. I love the way Luke says it. So he went in and he, said, and he reclined at the table. Now he's not the host, he's the guest. So the host is supposed to serve, right? In this case, no. It says, he took bread, he gave thanks, he began to break it and give it to them. And it says in verses 30 and 31, I think 30 or 31, it says, and their eyes were opened and he vanished from their sight. Were not our hearts burning within us as he spoke with us along the way? And they ran all the way back to Jerusalem. We have seen the Lord. Christ reveals himself in this meal. He does it over and over and over again. He is is the host at every Eucharist, and he is the one who is given to us at every Eucharist as well. Elizabeth Anscombe, great British uh, uh, analytical philosopher who died in 2001, she's probably known to some of you because in 1948, she absolutely demolished C.S. Lewis in a debate. (laughs) Now, uh, Elizabeth Askam is a, not just a, a, an accomplished and, and um, highly, uh, highly renowned philosopher. She also was a serious believer. So this is one believer debating another when she just demolished C.S. Lewis. He, his friends say that he was very upset, but she said he wasn't that upset. They talked later. He actually went back and revised his book, uh, Chapter 3 in his book, Miracles, because of the debate that they had had. He was, very, he was actually quite a humble man. But anyway, uh, Elizabeth Ascom was talking about one time that uh, she was in church, in the back of the church, and there was a mother with, uh, I think it was a daughter. And the, daughter, the child was a three-year-old, I do remember that, a toddler. And she's explaining to this child that she is about to go forward to receive uh, the bread and wine, that she's going to take the body and blood of Jesus, and that, is how, uh, and that is how Jesus wants to be in us. And so the child is listening very carefully. And then the mother goes up. She receives the Eucharist. She comes back, and she's about to be seated. She's standing there, and the toddler looks up, and he says, Is he in you? The mother said, taking him back, yes. And then something amazing happened. Elizabeth Anscombe said, And the child fell at its mother's feet, prostrate children see they see him in the breaking of the bread he is revealed in the breaking of the bread ends that story by saying I know this is true I saw it happen he is revealed to us over and over and over again sometimes in the very moment when the bread is broken and the wine is shared we recognize him present he is revealed to us and sometimes it's just a cracker and some grape juice but later in the week, we realize that we met him there as we are strengthened on, along the way. Sometimes it is, only, it is only when we have been without the Lord's Supper for a period of time that we realize that there is something missing in our Christian walk. And what we realize then is, I haven't been with Jesus at his table because he's really revealed to me in the breaking of bread. He longs for you to see him, the risen Lord. He longs for you to know him intimately. It is, it's not like, it's not like he, he doesn't play hard to get all the time. Sometimes he does because our attention is on the fish. I got 153 fish. Woo-hoo. Hey, I'm over here on the beach. But he wants you to know him. He, he goes out of his way to reveal himself to, him, to you. Won't you come in faith? and see Christ revealed in bread and wine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.